I think what we do really well is we've been able to maintain our character over the years. You know, you've gone through through leadership changes. We've gone through ownership changes over the last 50 years. We've had setbacks at times and we've still continued to retain that character. And, and I think that's what, what makes it, this mountain really exciting to our community. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, moving back to one of the nation's great ski states today, New Hampshire. Before we do that, do your part and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow the Storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. The Storm Skiing podcast is brought to you by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Issue 195 dropped in my mailbox the other day, and it is incredible. Well, actually, since this thing won't fit into my mailbox, it was hand-delivered by a courier like it was a message from the president, but it was much better than that. First, I spent an hour just absorbing the photos. Ryan Salm bangs out a photo essay on cliff jumping that will give you vertigo. His angles and the panoramas that he captures these things from are just hard-stopping. Lee Cohen drops a batch of Alta shots. I really don't need to say anything else about that because you know those alone are worth the price of the mag. And Jason Roman tags along with the Crazy 8 Motorcycle Club, which is a bunch of dudes who ride their rigs through snowy roads in upstate New York. Completely awesome. And then there's the riding. There's the beautiful opening penned by editor and owner Mike Rogie, who brought Mountain Gazette back from the dead. There's an introspective and in many ways shocking essay about hotshot firefighting crews written by Amanda Monti. And former free skier editor Donnie O'Neill perfectly captures the energy and power of the sunrise. And that's just the beginning. If you subscribe today, you may still be able to get a copy of 195. So head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 48, John Hunt, Executive Director of Whaleback, New Hampshire. There are a lot of ski areas in New Hampshire and a lot of great ski areas in New Hampshire. There's so many good ones, in fact, that it's easy to overlook the rest. Cannon, Loon, Waterville Valley, Atitash, Wildcat, Bretton Woods, Black, Cranmore, Ragged, Gunstock, Sunapee. What more do you need? I'll tell you what the ski world needs. Well back. This little ski area may only rise 700 vertical feet, which, by the way, is pretty damn big in some parts of the country. But it has a hell of a lot of heart, and Whaleback plays a really important role in the state ski culture. It is a safe place for families and beginners to get after it and hone their game. And it has a unique characteristic. Wellback is great, but it was a mess for decades. As one owner after the next found themselves deeply in debt and unable to hang on. The place finally found a sustainable model in 2013 when a group of locals took over and converted Wellback into a nonprofit organization. Now a mix of donations and revenue support that operation. The board is ready to take Wellback's evolution to its next level, which is why they recently released a new strategic plan. The linchpin of that whole thing is hiring an executive director 
to run the whole operation. That's John Hunt, and he is going to give us the details on all of this today. Let's go. My guest today is the newly appointed executive director of Whaleback Mountain in New Hampshire. Whaleback has 31 trails and glades on 700 vertical feet, served by a 1970 Heron Poma double chair. Since 2013, Whaleback has been a nonprofit ski area managed by the Upper Valley Snow Sports Foundation. Prior to joining Whaleback last month, he spent four years as major gifts officer at Colby Sawyer College and, before that, 16 years as a collegiate and prep school lacrosse coach. John Hunt is my guest. John, so good to have you on the program. Thanks, Stuart. I really appreciate you having me. I'm excited to, to talk about Whaleback and, and jump into the ski industry. So, yeah, as you said, you're new to the ski business, but you've had a really interesting career, as I just said. Uh, tell us about your professional life prior to joining Whaleback. Sure. Yeah, I spent uh, the last four years or so in the alumni and development world. Um, after a midlife career change at, at 40 um, and moving to the Upper Valley of New Hampshire, uh, I was hired at uh, Kimball Union Academy in the development office. And I, I did that for about a year and then um, was looking at kind of the next step in the fundraising world and was hired at Colby Sawyer College as a major gifts officer, where I worked with alumni and friends that could potentially give in the you know 25,000 plus lifetime range. And uh, it was a really neat opportunity and it, it allowed me um, to kind of broaden my resume and broaden my experience quite a bit. So how did you jump into fundraising from lacrosse? Is, is, there, is there some commonality there? Or, or like you said, it was a career change. What, what made you want to go in that direction? Well, it, that, there's a lot of reasons. I think, it, you know, on the, on the top level, it's a very transferable, they're all transferable skills. You know, whether you're coaching lacrosse when you're recruiting kids or fundraising for your programs or trying to navigate um, the lives of 50 18 to 22 year old males for an entire season while they're in college. Um, you know, I think you learn a lot of skills and, and first and foremost, you learn people skills, how to work with folks, how to understand what makes them tick and how, how to support them. So I think, you know, all, all along my career of coaching, um, you know, folks had always said, if you ever moved out of coaching, you'd probably learn, move into the fundraising development kind of administrative world. And I always thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then, you know, when we, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, we ended up shifting and moving to this area. And, um, you know, I have a young family. Uh, the life of coaching means you're gone all the time. And like I said before, your livelihood is based on the actions and decisions of 18 to 22 year old males. So we were looking for a change and, and this, that seemed like the right next step. Um, yeah. So I think it's just, you know, it's all transferable. It's, can, can you talk to people? Can you relate to people? And, and can you listen? So let's talk about your time as a lacrosse coach. That, that's a really interesting life. As you mentioned, you're on the road a lot. You're working with a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities. Where did you coach at, John? And what were some of the highlights of that part of your life? So I, I, I went to Plymouth State University. It was Plymouth State College when I graduated. I, uh, I chose Plymouth because of the, um, you know, the ability to ski, to mountain bike. And there was lacrosse in the area, or there was a lacrosse team. And then once I got to college, I recognized that lacrosse was, was my passion um, for that time. And once I graduated, I, I wanted to stay involved with the game, and I jumped into coaching. So I was an assistant at Quinnipiac University for two years. And then I think I got tired of being stuck in traffic on I-95 in Connecticut and was trying to figure out what to do next. And I had an opportunity to move to, uh, to the great state of Maine, where I was hired as an assistant lacrosse coach at Colby College. I spent a couple years there and then jumped to the University of New England for my first head coaching experience. Um, 
wonderful opportunity. Lived on the coast of Maine, still only an hour from from Sunday River and Sugarloaf. So it was, it was a really neat opportunity. Um, and then uh, life changes, and uh, my wife and I had our first child, and we wanted to kind of find a, a different opportunity. And I was presented with the opportunity to go to Bridgeton Academy, which is an all-male, all-postgraduate school in Bridgeton, Maine, um, where we lived on campus. We were a part of that community. It gave us the flexibility to be around um, the kids, but also my kids a lot more. Um, and then this is kind of where life really hits you in the, uh, and I'll try to give you the short version, but uh, in the fall of 2015, the head coach at Colby College um, died unexpectedly of a heart attack at 35 years old. And uh, my wife and I were like, how do we support him? He was a good friend of mine. I spoke with the athletic director. They were talking about different options because like I said, they had 50, 50, 18 to 22 year old young males that just lost their mentor, their leader, their friend. And they also had to get back on the field and compete in the toughest conference in America in division three. Um, so through those conversations, uh, we agreed to uproot our family and move to back to Waterville and, uh, and get those kids back on the field. Um, so when you ask, you know, kind of what was the biggest impact in my life outside of my marriage and the birth of my two children, um, being the interim head coach at Colby college was absolutely that, um, we were able to get those young men back on the field able to help them heal. And I think what I learned through the process that as much as I was there to help them heal, they helped me heal in losing my friend. And it was just a really, really life-changing opportunity um, to, to be an important part of those, those kids' lives. Um, and then the end of the interim contract came and the athletic department went one way and we went another way. And that way was we moved to uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. And that's kind of where we're at now. So it sounds like lacrosse was really central to your life, very meaningful to you, uh, both as a passion and, and just in the professional relationships that you built and the relationships with these young men. So what made you decide, um, I, I guess, after you after you did make that first transition, you know, you're still sort of at that point adjacent to college sports, right? Because you're, you're working at a college. Now you jump in a completely different direction into the ski industry. What made you decide to shift into that world? I think it, it kind of came out of, out of nowhere where, you know, I saw the posting. I, I had been looking at kind of what was the next step for me professionally. And it, fundraising is something I like, I'm good at, but it's, it's not always a passion in a lot of ways. So I wanted to find something where I could still do that. I could still be involved with some form of athletics because I think, again, that's, that's my wheelhouse. Um, and I recognize that being a part of a community is really important to me. Uh, my, my children go to the Hanover schools. My wife teaches in the Hanover school district. I'm a school board member in, in Hanover. Um, so we're already part of the upper Valley, which makes up, you know, kind of Hanover, Canaan, Enfield, Lebanon, across the river into Norwich, Vermont, and kind of up towards Orford, New Hampshire. So it's a big area and it's a great community. Um, so when I saw this position, I, I know a few members on the board. I know what Whaleback is. I'd skied here for the last five years on and off again. It has a great vibe. It vibe. It's a awesome community um, kind of piece and, and place for you to go with your children. It's it's very family friendly. It's a it's a has enough opportunities for kids to learn and learn to love how to ski, but also for an adult to get out and kind of find some some really cool steeps and some trees. And then you couple that with a really neat lodge with a great vibe and a great pub. And we started thinking, could this be something that would be appealing to me? And just through the conversations with our, with our board and with my family, 
it seemed like the right fit for me at the right time. Recognizing that I don't have uh, the ski industry background, I do have a love for skiing, which after transitioning out of coaching uh, where that occupied my entire life, we were able to jump back into skiing and I've able to, I've been able to get my kids on the mountain. I have not been able to get my wife on the mountain. Who's a Florida girl. So that's kind of the <laughs> next step. Um, but I think, you know, just being a part of something that is really important to this community and helping it move forward in the future. I think it, the pieces kind of all fell into place as, as we were going through the process. Do you think John, that there was something specifically unique about Whaleback that made this opportunity compelling for you? As, as opposed to uh, a different ski area that may have worked out. I mean, the, the advantage I see, I guess, as a, as a new person coming in as well back is it's manageable, right? From a size point of view, it's not like you're, you're going and taking over Sunday River, right? You're, right. you're, you're, you're kind of easing it. Not, not that Whaleback doesn't have all the challenges that another Northeast ski area would, but, but it is special in this way that it's this nonprofit and it's family oriented and, and it, it's found this niche. It, was there something special about this place that made you think, okay, the, kind of put you over the top. All right, I re- this makes me want to be in the ski world. Yeah, I think I think you just nailed it right there. The fact that it's a nonprofit, it's one of the few nonprofit ski areas in the country. Um, the fact that it is so community centered, um, and the fact that it has a a cultish following, I think makes it really exciting. Uh, you know, I think if I were looking at really jumping into the ski industry, I, I don't necessarily think I would have been the right fit for a lot of places because of my background. I think the fact that Whaleback is a nonprofit community-based organization, I think being a community guy, being someone that is able to connect folks together and communicate, I think, relatively well, and then also having this optimism for what we can do here and and what we can do better and for a long term, I think made it, put it far ahead of other places out there. And that really gets into the unique nature of this job, John. This is uh, it's a unique title, executive director. This is not a, a title that you see often in the ski world. Usually it'd be general manager. So you're not replacing anyone. This is a newly created position at Whaleback that the board of directors created. Uh, tell us about what you'll be overseeing and why the board of directors decided to create this new role. Yeah, I think, you know, you know we, we've, had, um, we've had general managers in the past. And I think they, with the last change, I think they recognize, you know, what specifically do we need here at the mountain? We already have a uh, mountain ops director who's fantastic. We already have a ski patrol director who's fantastic. We have a ski school director who's fantastic. You know, we have all those pieces. So I think the board recognized that we don't necessarily need someone who's going to come in and tell them how to do their job because they're already doing it really well. Right. What we need is someone who can, who can lead them, who can connect the dots and, and be able to listen to their needs and then be able to go to the board and go to our other stakeholders and potential donors and the community and say, here's what we need. And how do I get these resources to support these people to continue to provide a high level experience? So they created this executive director role by going off kind of that nonprofit model of having, having a, and, and this sounds weird for me to say about myself, but having a face of the organization. Someone who can get out and, and do podcasts and speak to the you know the local newspapers and get in with the the Rotary clubs and the, the you know the chambers of commerce you know someone who can who can devote that time to connecting the community back to the mountain I think is what they specifically needed now you know I'm going to work with the directors of all those and essentially you know I, I'm going to be working with them making sure that what they need is supported um, and then also managing 
you know, the conversation between the board and, and being a part of board meetings and recognizing we have a very different board than most nonprofit organizations in that out of necessity over the last 10 years, they've had to be a very hands-on board where they've been very involved. It's a, it's a more volunteer work than most boards um, require. And I think, you know, in the long term, our goal would be to, to let them kind of, you know, not get away from it, but be able to step back and offload some of the day-to-day operations on me and on our people that are on the mountain that, that are, you know, kind of more suited to be able to do that. When you're a volunteer board, you're also, you also have a full-time job. You know, we, we have doctors, we have, we have, uh, you know, uh, teachers, we have all sorts of folks that, you know, bring a lot of different values to our group. Um, but they don't need to be getting their hands dirty on the day-to-day stuff. That's not necessarily what they need to do, but out of necessity, that's what they've done over the, over the past 10 years. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of skills that are uniquely suited for the situation at Whaleback. And and really it's, it's not unheard of for someone to come into the ski industry from the outside and run a mountain. Kevin Mack, the general manager up at Burke, Vermont, spent a career in nonprofit work, a lot of them in the West Coast, a lot in D.C., prior to coming up to Vermont and transitioning into skiing. And, and that kind of made sense. And I hosted Kevin on the podcast. And wh- where it gives him an advantage is, okay, he's working, you know, the he, he needs to expand the snowmaking pond at Burke. And the local Sierra Club wants to make sure the environment is protected. And well, you know, Kevin was, is uniquely suited for that because he has this reputation of spending decades out in the Sierras in California helping to protect habitats. So they know that he's someone who's going to be a good steward of this, but also he needs to take care of his business, right? So in that way, no, does he, does he know how to, you know, uh, run a snowcat? Maybe not, but he knows how to do an essential skill, right? And I kind of see a, a par- parallel here where, you know, you might not be able to take the lift apart and repair it, but you do have this, this essential skill set of, of knowing how to get people to commit money to you, which is not an easy thing to do. So, so that being my kind of working assumption here, uh, how do you how do you view this? How did your career up to this point prepare you to take on the job of operating a ski area? Yeah, I think uh, I think your your point about you know I'll, I'll use your example about the lift. I, I'm definitely not mechanical. Um, you know, unfortunately, my father never taught me to be very handy with anything. So I think where I come in is um, having an appreciation for the work that needs to be done, being able to learn kind of at the highest level from our our uh, mechanic folks and be able to understand what it is they need and what they're doing. And then being able to articulate that to potential donors, supporters, community members that, that, you know, understand the importance of having that lift running and why it's not running and what we need to do to take care of that. Um, I think it's just being able to, to listen to that donor and understand what they're looking for, understand what our needs and be able to connect those dots. So have you had a chance to meet with your staff yet and and understand what's working, what isn't? Yes. Um, so first, I think this is week three. So <laughs> these three weeks have been connecting with staff, uh, connecting with the board. Uh, but I prioritize the staff first because they're they're in the thick of it. They're, they just went through, honestly, one of the hardest winters that anyone's ever gone through. And they did it, you know, really well. And I think what they need now is someone to support them moving forward to, to continue doing their job at a high level. So I made sure... I, I felt I placed a priority on speaking with them first. Um, you know, the next step is connecting with the board and, and figuring out, you know, kind of what they see is important to, to the long-term sustainability of the mountain. And then being able to work with both those groups and, and, you know, make sure I've got our strategy laid out. 
So after you've talked to all these folks, what does your learning curve look like here, John? I mean, you have a lot of different areas to the parts of the ski area, right? You have the kind of mechanical piece with the lifts and groomers and snowmaking. Um, you have the management component where you're organizing people and buildings. You have the business component where you're running a budget and you're dealing with customers. Um, which of those pieces do you feel most equipped to manage and which are going to take a little more work to catch up on? And I'm not suggesting that you have to understand, you know, the exact pressure to run a, a snow gun at or anything, but, but I, I think you need to understand basically, you know, when that needs to start and, and how to, you know, fit the snowmaking into the budget, et cetera, as you go through the year. So, so where do you, where are you feeling comfortable? Where are you feeling uh, maybe over your head or, or where you have a lot to learn? Shoot, I feel over my head in all of it. I think it's uh, because it's it's so new and it's such a, a a different opportunity for me. But I think that's where the excitement comes in. I think I'm excited to learn about snowmaking and groomers and how we run our after school programs and how Thursday night race league works. So I think um, there's more of an optimism from me on learning how to do those things. I think where I'm really comfortable, I think is is connecting people. So my conversations with our staff have gone really well. Um, I think our conversations with the board and with, with potential donors is going really well. So I, I feel really good about those areas. I think the other piece that is something we need to do a little bit better is that we've been operating as a ski area. We've also been operating as a nonprofit, but we've never been recognized specifically in the upper Valley as an organization, as an organization that runs as a nonprofit and, and has a ski area that runs really well. So I think the organizational leadership piece is the part that I, I have the opportunity to, I guess, put my largest fingerprint on that I'm really excited about. You know, taking what we do, broadcasting that to the world, and being able to deliver on, on this new strategic plan that, that the board has put forward. And, and the first step in that strategic plan was getting someone sitting in this desk, mm -hmm. at this desk. So uh, what, is this, what is the ski area already doing well? And, and aside from that, from what you just mentioned, what are its opportunities to improve and grow in the future? I think what we do really well is we've been able to maintain our character over the years. You know, you've gone through through leadership changes. We've gone through ownership changes over the last 50 years. You know, th there's been a lot of changes. We've had setbacks at times and we've still continued to, to retain that character. And, and I think that's what, what makes it, this mountain really exciting to our community. Um, no, I, I think that's what we do really well. I think we focus on skier development really well. And, I, and that's part of our strategic plan moving forward is how do we focus on being, the, being a very good ski program, ski school program? How do we balance the, the alpine race programs, the club programs in the area, as well as potential high schools in the area? And how do we fit that all into the schedule while maintaining that unique character? I think those are the things we do really well. I think we could do better. Um, you know, I think the areas that we can improve that are part of our strategic plan are how do we continue to maximize our snowmaking capacity? Um, you know, what, what routes do we go? And I, I'm still learning the, the terminology in that area, but I think we have a general plan and, and I'm excited to see that plan move forward. Um, you know, maintaining our current chairlift. I think I'm probably jumping ahead to one of your questions, but I think that's a big part of this strategic plan is we have a chairlift that is older. It's had some troubles over the years. Um, but one of the things that we're really excited about is that structurally it still has some life in it. We have to make some, some upgrades to it right now. We're, we're going to start doing that work this summer and we're going to make sure it's, it's gone through the appropriate, uh, approvals early before the season starts. So we can 
we can provide that level of um, trust to our pass holders going into the season. So let's talk about that strategic plan, John. So the press release that announced your hiring refers to the Mountains strategic plan. And, and the first step, as you said, was getting someone in the seat. Uh, take us through the plan. What are you trying to accomplish? What is it going to take to do it? And what is your timeline? Yeah, so the, 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 you know, the proposed strategic vision is a sustainable nonprofit ski area that retains its unique characters, focused on skier development, optimizes availability of existing terrain during the ski season. If we can do those things, we can be sustainable for a long time. Now, how do we execute that? I think, you know, as, as I've talked about probably to death, is that we have that unique character. We're a classic New England ski area um, focused on family and friendly atmosphere. And we're a big part of the Upper Valley community. Um, you know, so I think, you know, getting the word out there that we also have great terrain for skiers of all levels. So one of our taglines, our new taglines is ski it to believe it. You've got to take some runs here to believe how great this terrain is and be excited about it. Um, you know, I think that next piece is the snowmaking capacity. We need to make sure that we can open earlier. Um, you know, if we're not, if we're only open 30 to 50 days, we're not going to make it. But if we can get into that 100-day mark, we will be sustainable for a long time. So that means we need to maximize our snowmaking capacity. Um, you know, I think that's, a, that's an area that we need to start to really invest in. And I think I jumped ahead a little bit, but we have two phases. One is a, you know, a phased-in plan for the next four years, five years. And then after that, then there's another five years of phase two. Um, you know, I think focusing on phase one right now is really important. Uh, maintaining that chairlift, like I talked about before, um, you know, it's going to require some routine maintenance over the next three years, but it, it, it's expected to, to operate safely for, you know, potentially another 10 years. Um, so we don't need to replace it. We just need to make sure we're maintaining it. Um, and then the skier development area is where we can really excel with our after-school programs. And like I said, the race development, you know, if we can develop and continue or continue to develop that high quality, affordable ski school, we can be really sustainable into the future. Let's talk a little bit more about the snowmaking and the chairlift. So, you know, it's a 50 year old chairlift and the, it's had a lot of issues. The 2020 season actually ended before the COVID shutdown because the summit chair just broke. What was the mechanical issue there and how did the ski area fix that so that the chair was able to operate for the 2020 to 21 season? I don't have the uh, exact, um, you know, kind of logistical reasoning behind that. But from from what's been explained to me, it was a very minor detail. It was a issue of actually just getting the maintenance, the work done. Um, and, you know, on a very specific piece that took less than a half a day to fix and was very inexpensive in the long run. Um, so it wasn't a major issue with the chair. Again, this is part of that learning curve of understanding how the chairs work. Um, but the way I understand it was, it wasn't a major issue. I think the bigger piece was our um, ability to really have a, a realistic understanding of what was going on, how long it would take, and then communicating that effectively to our stakeholders. Um, you know, so I think moving forward, making sure we have a really transparent communications plan, and, and that falls on me to make sure we're, we're updating our stakeholders as often as possible. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but I, again, with my um, learning curve, I think that the terminology may be a little off at this point. And you mentioned you want to get another 10 years out of that chair. What do you have to do to make sure that that thing will keep moving for another decade reliably and safely? 
Yeah, so right now, um, what's starting in the next week or so is we're, we're replacing the diesel backup completely. We've replaced the entire, or we are replacing the entire electrical unit. Um, and those pieces will be really important to the sustainability. And then um, there are other, again, this is where I'm missing the, the terminology, but there are other small pieces within the, within the system that will need kind of tinkering maintenance over the next few years. So then you move down to the lower mountain and you have another trio of lifts. You have a pretty new T-bar, a magic carpet, and a rope toe. Are those all in pretty good shape or do any of those need any kind of work or upgrading? Yeah, no, those are, those are in good shape. You know, they, again, with, with age comes um, more maintenance, but they're all in good shape right now. Um, one of, our, one of our, the pieces of our strategic plan, which would be the first kind of capital piece, would be how do we put in a new surface lift on the lower part of the mountain um, on the, the side that goes to lower spout, which would, if we can provide a, a surface lift there, it's easier to get snow coverage there earlier in the season. We can get skiers up to at least that level to where we can, we can really, between the ski school area, um, that would open up our Alpine training programs. It'll open up a little bit steeper pitch for um, folks to get out recreationally. So we can open up the the after school programs earlier, and it also will give access to the terrain park section of the mountain. So by by putting in a new surface lift on that section, um, we we believe that it'll give us the opportunity to open much earlier and get to that you know hundred days open. Would you be looking to take that up to the top of Spout, up up to Bougain Villa? It would come to the top of Lower Spout, so where the where the basically just above where the race shack is. Um, and that would give options for the two runs down from there. Are you looking at a T-bar? Potentially, yeah. Okay, is that part of the strategic plan? Yes, yeah. Okay, so looking at snowmaking, it, what percentage of snowmaking coverage do you have now? Are you 100% outside of the glades? Uh, shoot, I should have done a little bit more research. I haven't gotten my um, snowmaking 101 class yet. That's scheduled for next week. Um, I do know that we have four new fans on order, um, potentially to, uh, from what I understand, they can be used at a little bit higher, uh, temperature and can produce a little bit drier snow again, just learning this stuff. Um, but we are, we're looking at those. They're also easier to move from what I've been told. Um, so we are, they'll give us the opportunity again to, to open a little bit more terrain a little bit earlier in the year. It does the long-term plan have steady investments in snowmaking every year to just upgrade that system and modernize Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, and how's your water supply there? Are you, do you have any water issues? Do you have a big enough pond? We have, so we have, we have a, a pond. It, again, uh, bear with me for a second. I believe we are at six, does this sound right? 600 gallons. Of, is that a minute? Um, <laughs> again, uh, just learning this. I, I think it's a little lower than, you know, some bigger mountains. Um, the way it's been explained to me is, um, pressure is more important than quantity. Um, so we are, we are working on ways to increase the pressure coming out of that pond to be able to, to be able to use the, the water guns, uh, you know, a little bit more efficiently. Yeah. You got to talk to Brian Heon over at Sunday river. He, he was on the podcast a few months ago and he gave, uh, a, a clinic on snowmaking that was way above my head, but he obviously is very invested in this stuff. Super. I will definitely follow that one up. Uh, so you have a, a pretty good night skiing footprint, which I think speaks to your kind of racing programs and your popularity with families. It's about currently about half the mountain is lit for night skiing. Are you happy with that 
footprint or is there anything in the strategic plan to potentially expand how many trails are lit for night skiing? I think long-term, we definitely would want to expand that. Uh, I think right now the, the investment would be in upgrading the current lights. Um, you know, we've got some that are a little bit older, some that are pointing the wrong direction. So we've got to make sure we're getting out there and, and upgrading that footprint. And I, I think that's, you know, that's an area that we're very different than anyone else in the area that, you know, the, the closer ski mountains, you know, don't have this, this opportunity to provide the night scheme. So we, we can really use it to um, our advantage in our after school programs, getting kids over here after school. We don't have to close at four o'clock. We can be open. We can provide that opportunity to get kids on the mountain midweek, not just on the weekends. Um, so I absolutely view the lighting structure as, as a long-term and short-term investment that are really important. A big investment that Bolton Valley made recently up in Vermont was they also have night skiing in not many areas in Vermont too, but they, they upgraded to, you know, more efficient energy lights. And that seemed to make a big difference both from visibility and just for their power bill. Um, have you made those upgrades yet or is Wellback still behind on that? I would say that's a work in progress, but it's, it's something that I, I you know, I think we, we believe in and understand as an important piece of what we do. Uh, so looking at the trail network, it's a bigger trail network than most skiers probably realize. I, I think the, the issue is where you are, right? You're in New Hampshire and you, you get a little lost because there's just so many good big ski areas. We have Cannon and Loon and Waterville Valley and um, Wildcat and Aditash and Bretton Woods. And, and it's easy to, to get overlooked, but it's all in context, right? So if, if you were in the Midwest, you'd be the king of the, <laughs> of the whole region. Um, so it's, it's a pretty nice trail network. Um, it, it has a lot of old winding New England style trails. Uh, it looks like there's room to maybe even cut more trails. Is, is that something you're looking to do to expand that footprint? Or is that just too far down the priority list, given the other things you have to do right now? Not currently. We, we actually are um, on the edge of both of our borders with our trails. Um, and I think, you know, through the kind of middle of the mountain and expanding, there, there are plans this summer to kind of widen a few areas. I know, I know our mountain ops folks are, uh, uh, well, folks, um, GERD would be, <laughs> has a plan to, to cut um, some trails a little bit wider to make it a little bit easier for um, beginners to get from the top to the bottom. So there are some areas that we're, we're widening a little bit, but not necessarily expanding the tra trail network just because we are kind of at the edge of our perimeter on our property. You actually have a pretty nice little glade network here, some pretty long trails. Are there any plans to thin any more glade areas? Um, have not had that discussion yet. I, I, as a, as a person that loves glades, I I'm up for that conversation if, if we have the areas to, to do that. Um, but that, that has not come up currently, but I think, you know, the more, because we can't expand outside our borders, the more we can do within, I, I think makes sense to us. Um, so I, I think we're, we're open to looking at anything that will, will provide a better experience for our, our, our folks. What's outside your borders? Is it private property? Is it government land? Yeah, private property. And there's no opportunity to potentially buy any of that in the future? I don't think so. I think um, there's a good chunk of the land that's owned by a couple of, uh, a couple of private families. So I, I, don't, I haven't heard that that's a possibility yet. Uh, but again, you know, I think with time, I, I'm, again, I think I'm an eternal optimist that I recognize who knows what could happen down the road. Have you had a chance to walk the mountain yet? I, I know that uh, you said you've skied there for a number of years. It, it always It's always a little different to walk a mountain in the summer. Just curious if you've gone up and down and kind of scoped out areas where where maybe 
you have an opportunity to, oh, that would be a fun woods trail or anything like that? Uh, not that in depth. I think my, um, so my first day was probably the coolest first day ever on any job I've ever had where I got a tour of the mountain on a, uh, on a Ranger four wheeler, which was pretty neat. So I could see kind of where the, where the snow, where the snowmaking guns were located. I could see, you know, I saw the pump house. I could see kind of where the lights that need to be fixed are. And I, I, I you know, I got an early glimpse at kind of where the trails, um, need a little bit more attention. Um, but I have not walked it yet. Uh, my my son, my ten year old did run up the side of it today okay. and came down panting pretty hard. So I think at some point I'm going to have to follow him. Any immediate improvements that you're working on for this off season that skiers can expect when they show up to ski this winter? Uh, I would say that the working lift is is number one on that list, um, and then followed by just hopefully kind of cleaned cleaner areas, you know, making sure the trails are, are cleaned up early and often making sure the snowmaking is at a high level. And I think the biggest difference I'm hoping if mother nature and our snowmaking work is being open earlier than ever before. Yeah. I mean, uh, last year was brutal for everybody. I mean, ski areas that, that are accustomed to opening much earlier in the year waited in, in a lot of cases till second week in December. And part of that was COVID related and just wanting to have more terrain open. But a lot of it was just the weather was terrible. Yeah, I think it's we're all, we're all kind of crossing our fingers on the weather. Um, but again, we're we're optimistic. If we can if we can prepare everything else the right way, and Mother Nature is close, I think we can we can get it done at at, at a really good level. So, besides lifts, snowmaking, any other on mountain improvements that are in this strategic plan, base lodge improvements, uh, warming huts, any anything of that nature. Uh, not currently. No, we just, um, we just, uh, redid the entire lot or the up, upper portion of the lodge last year. So the lodge might look a little different if you haven't been here in a couple of years. Um, so that's been done. The lodge is in great shape now. Um, you know, I think you'll see not warming huts, but you'll see a bunch of really big fire pits that we put in last, last winter that, um, really were useful on our Friday family nights. Um, where we, you know, invited families in and, and had bonfires. There was a movie scheduled for one night, but the weather didn't cooperate. But I think, you know, trying to do a lot of things that will um, encourage families to, to come to the mountain, um, you know, I, I think is, is really important to us. So let's go back, John, and talk a little bit more about this nonprofit status. This is a really unique, it's not a unique model, but it, it's a rare model in the ski world. And I think it's really interesting. So Wellback is is not-for-profit. Um, Tell us how much does the ski area rely on contributions for its operations? Well, I think it's it's a big part of it. You know, it, contributions are going to be key to our long term sustainability, and that's that's through you know individual giving. Absolutely, it's also through uh, partnerships with local businesses and and support and relationships with with some of the bigger companies. You know, I think. Those are some of the areas that we haven't tapped into as much. We we have a great relationship with Share Winter, where they've been very supportive, and you know we'd really like to continue that. And then you know, kind of looking at what other you know larger grant opportunities are out there. I think you know one of the one of the hard parts over the years has been not it's been that piece has been relied on by or has been responsibility of of a volunteer board. So now having someone you know I don't have to. I have to know what's going on on the mountain, but I don't have to, you know, handle the day to day of that because I have really good people that do that. So I can focus on finding grants and finding high level donors and, and really getting in front of those folks. So currently I, I don't have a percentage on, you know, what we need. 
I just know the more we can do, the better. Um, and, and that starts with building relationships and building trust with the community. When you say with the larger companies, do you mean the larger ski companies like Altera, Boyne, Vale, Powder? Or do you um, mean something else? I think I'm open to discussions with anyone that, that wants to be a part of be a part of our, our future. Um, but I think, you know, I think we've got to be really careful in terms of, you know, who we're partnering with that, that they believe in, in, you know, they have the same values as us and, and have that, you know, that, that skier community, that skier development and community, um, focus. I think that's really important to us. So I, I don't necessarily think, you know, partnering with a multinational conglomerate or corporation is really in our best interest. You know, but if, if there are, if they have, you know, specific foundations that are, you know, offshoots of their corporations that they like to support local groups, I, I'm happy to have those conversations. So you mentioned earlier that you would love to get to a hundred day season. And I think that's kind of the baseline in the Northeast. If, you know, you can make a business work on that. So I'm curious, is the long-term goal here to transition out of the, not the nonprofit model, but the, the, the donor reliant model? Or has the board determined that Whaleback is what it is? It, it, it's a ski area that is not going to, doesn't really have a model to survive without some kind of subsidy. Uh, what, what, what's, what is, what's your thinking there? Yeah, I don't necessarily think there's ever a goal to move away from the nonprofit structure. And again, that's where I, you know, where my passion lies in that by being a nonprofit, we can be community focused. I think, you know, if we can do some things, whether it's through subsidies or hitting that hundred days and crushing our ski school program and, and bringing in a ton of revenue, we can use that to reinvest in the infrastructure here. And I think that's really important to our long-term sustainability. Um, but I don't think we ever would get away from the nonprofit piece. I think, you know, that's, that's what makes us special. We're, we're a local community-based nonprofit that relies on our community using the mountain and giving back to the mountain. You know, I, I'm curious, New Hampshire is a state that's very invested in skiing, actually owns two ski areas, uh, Cannon and Mount Sunapee, which obviously Vail uh, leases and operates. And Governor Sununu is the owner of Waterville Valley. Does the state support uh, your, your Whaleback at all, or, or are you looking to stay away from that? Um, we are exploring grant opportunities that are um, funded by the, by the state. I think, you know, by being um, a nonprofit helps um, gives us that opportunity, but also um, being really community focused and um, really going to being affordable to to folks that maybe aren't going to be on the mountain because of the higher prices at other places. I think if we can get state funding or or grant funding to help support that, uh, that's an avenue we would definitely look at. So give us a primer on the fundraising role, John. I think for most of us, this is uh, an alien and and frankly probably intimidating world to think about. So tell us how this works. Give us a, give us a primer. How do you go out and ask people for money to support a cause, even a great cause? Yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, recognizing who, who has an affinity to the mountain, you know, specifically pass holders. If someone is investing in a season pass, they clearly want to be here. Um, I think for me, this winter is going to be a lot of, you know, talking to folks in the lodge, you know, standing outside by the lift and talking to folks and, and seeing what excites them about the mountain. And I think through those conversations, I think if you're, if you're really, um, if you do a lot of listening and you also understand the mission of, of your organization, of what Whaleback is about and can articulate that to folks, I think those conversations become a little bit easier because people that 
are in love with something and see that it needs a little bit of help are more excited to support it in the long run. And I think being able to connect the dots of, okay, I, I talked to, I talked to Stuart yesterday and Stuart thinks, you know, the, the learning area needs something new to make it a little bit better. And I also recognize that Stuart has a little bit of capacity. Well, I'm going to have that conversation with him about how do we, how do we help him to have a better experience? And if it, it means he's making a little bit of a donation, then that's the conversation we'll have. Um, but I think it really goes back to understanding your constituents and, and really recognizing why they come here, why they love the mountain, and what will make the experience even better for them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what we're about, is providing an experience that people love, whether they're an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old that's been here forever. You know, I think they, they, rec- they, rec- they come here for a reason. Let's make sure we're delivering what we're promising. And then also looking at ways to improve that. You know, I was talking to uh, to Andy Shepard, who runs Saddleback, which just came back online in, in Maine. And prior to that, he ran the Maine Winter Sports Center. And the mission of that organization was to rehabilitate ski areas that were either lost or in danger of becoming lost. And they did a great job with Black Mountain of Maine and some others. I'm curious if, if there's a similar organization in New Hampshire that has this vested interest in, in supporting winter recreation and mountains like yours? I think there's, um, at the, I'm trying, the name is escaping me, but through actually the, the New Hampshire, um, governor's office, there is a new director of outdoor recreation in the state. Um, and I am, I'm connecting with him next week, um, or in two weeks to, to discuss kind of what, what opportunities there are for um, for Whaleback, along with with their organization? Um, again, I'm I'm kind of puttering through this because the the name escapes me right now. But it's you know I think there's a, a really unique opportunity to partner with them as they're supporting infrastructure in the state for recreation um, by being because we're really a um, a nonprofit. We can we can partner with them. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it did. And, and, you know, this, this seems to be, it seems like the board has done a lot of work to find a sustainable model. And looking back at Whaleback's history, this is a ski area that has just suffered from repeated cycles of indebtedness and foreclosure. I'm curious if the ski area has debt now, and, and if not, how crucial that fundraising has been to keeping the ski area out of debt. Well, I think the, the fundraising is going to be an important part of that. I think right now we're, we're in a really I'm not going to say really good, but we're in a very stable position financially um, at the end of the year in two weeks, at the end of our fiscal year. Um, so looking ahead to this next year, fundraising is a big piece of that. And like I said, partnerships um, around the area is really important to that. And I think the most important piece, at least for me as a community-based organization, is making sure we regain that trust with our pass holders and future pass holders to want to continue to commit to this mountain and, and to this organization. I think that, that those are really important pieces of it. Um, but it, fundraising is going to be a, a piece of that for, for the foreseeable future. You know, another way that Whaleback gets by is with a lot of volunteers. And labor is a huge cost for any ski area. Curious, just how much does Whaleback rely on volunteers versus paid staff? Yeah, we do. We do have quite a few uh, volunteers. Our um, you know, the majority of our ski patrol are volunteers. Um, we, we do, uh, 
volunteer cleanup days in the in the summer and fall. Uh, we also partner with uh, Hypertherm, um, which is a, a large corporation based out of Lebanon, right down the road. Um, and they have a volunteer program as a, as a corporation to where they'll come over and send, you know, 15 to 20 people in a day and they get their volunteer work and we get some work done around the mountain. Um, so we are currently planning that right now. Um, but anytime someone wants to volunteer their time, we can find something for them to do on the mountain. And if they want to volunteer for a while back, how do they do that? Just reach out to me and I can point them in the right direction. And you mentioned ski patrolling. What other kind of work do they do? I'd imagine they're not driving snowcats or, you know, running guns or, or loading lifts, but but what kind of what kind of jobs do you have them doing throughout the mountain during the season? Uh, volunteers um, during the season. That's something I'm still getting a handle on. Um, <laughs> I think you know. I think if if folks want to volunteer and be you know help with um, checking passes, I think is a really neat way for folks to connect with the community, but also make sure that you know people are doing it the right way. You know, we want to make sure we're we're providing the space for folks to, to get on the mountain, but also that folks are, are doing it, um, like I said, the right way. Um, so, you know, if folks want to do that, I think that's a really neat way to just get out and talk to people. Um, you know, I think anytime we can get folks that, that want to help with the ski school, if they want to volunteer, great. That, that's a fantastic way to, to get involved with your community. Um, and then through our after school programs, you know, we'll lean heavily on, each community um, to provide the the transportation and the the um, the volunteers to help put kids ski boots on in the lodge and make sure the rentals are taken care of. You know, we, we'll rely heavily on on volunteers for that piece. And do they get a lift ticket or a pass? Or yeah, they would get a get a ticket for that day. I believe it would be for the day. Um, I have to do a little bit more homework on kind of the long term things we'd give in exchange. So this, as I mentioned, you're not the only nonprofit ski area around. Um, up in Vermont, Cochrane's is a very successful ski area uh, right there down below Bolton Valley. Mount Spokane, Washington is another one that your Wellback website mentions as a ski area using this model. I'm curious, John, if you've reached out to those or similar ski areas to help understand this intersection of skiing in the nonprofit world and, and some of the things that you may be able to do to, to help this thing run great. Yeah, so that's next week's agenda item for me um, is to start following up with them. We have a relationship with Cochran's already in that um, we've kind of leaned on them a little bit over the last couple of years just to to learn how they do things. More specifically, their after school programs. They do a fantastic job with their after school programs. Um, so you know, working with them on kind of what works for them and what might work for us. Uh, so that relationship is already there. I just have not yet gotten to that that connection. So let's go into the history a little bit here. Whaleback has a, a really on and off history, and it's just one of these New England ski areas that just over the decades had a really hard time getting it right. And it's closed three separate times since opening as Snowcrest Ski Area in the 1950s. Just talk a little bit about some of the challenges the ski areas faced historically and why it took so long to find the sustainable model. I don't know if I have an answer as to why. You know, I think... I think, as you probably know, it's hard to, to produce revenue as a ski area, um, especially if you don't have lodging, you don't have restaurants or gift shops, you know, you're just a small lodge with, with a great little pub and, and some food. Um, but, you know, we're not, we're not catering to the, you know, the, the out-of-town travelers as much. So it, we really have to rely on the community. And so I think, you know, 
getting that model right is, is a fine balance. And I, I feel like as with the nonprofit model, it it reduces some of our limitations, you know, in terms of you know, tax exempt status. Um, you know, we're, we're able to apply for grants that that for profit companies can apply for. I think those kind of pieces put us in line for a little bit more long term st- stability. Yeah, I think in addition to that, it's you've really Wellbeck has really done a nice job finding a niche. So you're you're in this huge competitive ski state, as I mentioned before. Vale owns four mountains there. Boeing owns one. Um, you're not going to compete with Cannon or Waterville Valley or Bretton Woods. And and you've referred to this a little bit, but but talk about this specific niche that Wellbeck has found as a family mountain. And, and why it's this ideal place for them. And I, I've personally found I do prefer the smaller mountains when I'm taking my kids skiing, but um, how have you been able to kind of sink into your identity as, as this beginner's Mecca and this place where people can go and kind of be safe and have fun and not spend their life savings? Yeah, I think, I, I think uh, I'm in the same boat as you in that I prefer kind of these smaller um, independent mountains if I'm going to go ski even by myself or with my children. I think what, what makes us really special for, for families is all the trails end up at one spot. It's impossible to get lost here. Um, you know, we do have a steep pitch, so you gotta, you gotta have a little bit of ability to get down. But I think once you get that, you're, you're able to really use the entire mountain and trail system, no matter what age. Um, and, and that's really exciting. And I think the fact that we have such an, an open community that all are welcome here and that it's not about, you know, paying the $130 for a day pass. It's, we want to make it affordable for everyone. So we're going to get folks of all levels and all um, backgrounds here. And, and that, that's a, a really important piece to our, our identity. Um, you know, I think you nailed it. We're not going to compete with, with the bigger mountains, but I think we have a place amongst those bigger mountains. You know, even if you're, you're going to a, a large mountain on your Saturday weekend trip or for February vacation, we're still here midweek when you might get out of work or after school and you could come over and take some runs and have dinner in the lodge and still get home for a, a good bedtime because we're, we're close by and easy to access, easy to access. I think that's where um, we've been able to kind of get that niche. And then, you know, through our adult Thursday night race league, I have not um, taken it up yet, but I have heard fantastic stories about it where we get, you know, a couple hundred people joining for this once a week race league. And it's a really, and that's where I think that cultish following comes from. And that's really exciting for us is a race league is, is built around community and community support. And, and we've, we've done that really well over the years. And I think COVID really threw a wrinkle into that, but we're excited to relaunch that this year and, and really get behind that program. Sounds like you're stepping into a really good situation, John. And I I think that speaks to the efforts of the boards whom you mentioned earlier and, and they, Starting in 2013, a gentleman named John Schiffman created the Upper Valley Snow Sports Foundation and signed a lease and purchase agreement with the bank that owned Wellback at the time. Tell us that story of how that organization, the board of directors and the uh, Upper Valley Snow Sports Foundation, took over the ski area and helped create this, uh, this sustainable model. Yeah, I think, you know, I had the chance to meet with John the other day. He's still on our board. Um, he, he was able to rally a couple of really influential people in the upper Valley that had really good connections and had a love of whaleback and a love of skiing. And he got those folks together with it, with a vision and was able to, to kind of 
rally the troops. And I think that's where it's exciting for Whaleback in all the years where, where, they've, where we've had troubles, the community has rallied around the mountain because it's such a, a, an important piece of the puzzle. Um, and I think John was able to really dive into that, that community focus and, and providing a, an affordable option for the community. Um, so I think that he really did, did um, fantastic work in getting that group together. And now since 2013, it's, you know, we've had um, some changes in board because I think boards always change a little bit and they grow. And I think the focus of what, what the mission of the, of the foundation and what Whaleback is has grown in that time. And, and I think that's what's brought us to this point where we're really optimistic and really excited about the future. I don't think I would have said yes to the position if I didn't believe in, in this board. And even more than that, believe in the staff that we have here. Uh, I think I've said it to as every person I've spoken to about my first three weeks. We have wonderful people working here that are in it for the right reasons. They're in it because what's best for Whaleback. And I think we keep coming back to that. Every conversation I have with someone, when you know one of us comes up with a new idea of you know whether it's a summer program or a, or a you know one of the shoulder season programs or even in the regular season, you know wanting to do something, I bring it back to well, what's best for Whaleback, and is that going to help us continue to be sustainable? And if we if we can stick to that model, I see there's no ceiling into how great we are and how great we can become. If you look at that community and and you look at your niche of, of servicing families. And, and this is what I'm going to get into talking about passes a little bit. So your, your season pass at Whaleback is just $180. Children are $75. Talk about that pass and, and why that makes the mountain so affordable. And, and also, I just want to point out, the mountain is closed on Mondays, or at least it typically is. I don't know what your plan is for it. Uh, but then it's open through the rest of the week, and it's open most nights. So, so that's a lot of skiing that's available to you for a very affordable price. So just talk about the philosophy there and, and why you keep that thing so low. Well, I think that goes right to our mission in providing an affordable option for families. Um, we are, the, the Upper Valley is a fantastic um, community. And we also have some very different towns within the community with different um, means. So, you know, I think making sure we're providing opportunities for all is really important to us. You know, we cut the season passes, um, due to COVID. And I don't see us changing that. I don't see us going back to pre-COVID rates um, because we saw an uptick in in our season pass sales by, I want to say, and I could be wrong, by like 37%. And that's really exciting. And I think one of the, if there are any silver linings to this global pandemic are, one is folks really want to find ways to recreate outside, especially during the winter. Um, and two, Folks want to stay closer to home a lot more than I think in the past, and, and they want to be with their families more. Shoot, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a college coach anymore is I want to be with my family more. And, you know, I think if we can provide that at an affordable rate, we can really generate a lot of excitement about what Whaleback is about and, and really draw the families in to making this or continuing Whaleback as their home mountain. And, and that's what we want, people to come here to feel home. There's a pretty cool benefit included in that pass and that Whaleback is a member of the Freedom Pass Coalition, which means that they get three free unrestricted days at 11 other ski areas, including McIntyre and Black in New Hampshire and several other ski areas in New England and out west. Uh, Whaleback stayed on that pass, even though Magic in Bolton Valley left for Indy Pass and Platykill just left it flat out. 
Talk about that partnership and why Whaleback stayed in the Freedom Pass and why it's the right move for that ski area. Well, it's funny. I actually just received an email from them today where I'm now being included in there, you know, because normally it was going through our board. Now it's being shifted to me. And, and I'm excited to have that conversation. I think um, I recognize that folks are going different directions, but I, you know, we can't be everyone to everyone, everything to everyone. So we've got to, again, go back to what we're about, what's best for Whaleback. Um, is the Freedom Pass? I think so, but I, I definitely have to look at that more. Um, you know, one of the, you know, you mentioned Bolton and Magic. I was a pass holder at, at the Dartmouth Skiway a couple of years ago when we first moved to town. And because of that Freedom Pass, we were able to come to Whaleback three times. And it, it, it turned into coming six times. Um, you know, we were able to go to Bolton and, and go to Magic and and really find a love for for those mountains too and and go those three times and potentially more. So I think those type of passes are really important to independent mountains like, like Wellback. And, and I think we will always continue to look at ways to partner with other groups. Um, you know, I think whether it's freedom or indie or whatever it is, I think there, there is a home for us. And I think that's, that's really important to us. So you feel confident about staying in the freedom pass for next season? I, th- I think at this point, I, I would think we would be a part of it for this season. Yeah. Excellent. So, Last question for you here, John. I know it's early yet. I know you're just learning and the world is changing very fast still, but how much have you talked to your staff about how they modified operations for COVID this past season and which of those changes might carry forth into the next season, the 2021 to 22 season? You mentioned those great fire pits you built. Are there other things that you changed for COVID that you think are going to stick around in the future? Um, I, I, like you said, I still think that's pretty early, but I think, you know, uh, as we talked about the, the lower pass prices is really important to us because we want to provide an affordable option. I think, um, you know, being able to buy your tickets online is not a bad thing. Folks like that, you know, making it easier for people to access their tickets and passes, I think is really important. Um, so I think those are things that probably will stick, um, in terms of other things, I think it's probably too early for me to comment on. Um, but I think we will absolutely go back and look at what worked and what didn't work during COVID and pre-COVID and come up with the most efficient, best plan for what's best for Whaleback. I'm sure you will, John. I, uh, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, particularly as you just learn the role yourself. And I know you're new to the ski area, so I really appreciate you taking the time to share your mission and and the story of Wellback uh, with with the listeners. Um, I, I think these are the kind of ski areas that we all agree are vital, and, and it takes a lot of creativity and work to keep them running. So we really appreciate what you're doing, and and really wish you the best of luck. And I'm hoping I can get up to Wellback myself this winter and check it out firsthand. Thanks, Stuart. I really appreciate the time, and I think um, we'd love to have you come up to the mountain as long as 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 well as all of your listeners. Um, and I think also I'd love the opportunity to come back on this podcast when I'm a little more versed in the logistics of ski areas, um, maybe someday down the road. Oh, yeah. Let's let's do it. <laughs> let's let's do it same time next year and see what you learned. We, we can do a before and after. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. That's John Hunt, executive director of Whaleback Mountain, New Hampshire. How cool does that place sound? How much do you want to support that place? Take a look at the trail map. It looks pretty fun. 
And I can almost guarantee you're not going to waste much time standing around in lines, even with just one double chair serving the summit. So thank you very much for that, John. I will look forward to having you back next year to reflect on year one. In the meantime, I wish the very best of luck to you in getting that mountain in top form. I thank you all for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The podcast is an important part of the storm, but the newsletter is where the whole thing comes together. Well, except for the parts that are on Instagram and Twitter, find me on those platforms at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.